The month of May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and it's sure to be a month when the effect of the pandemic has had on all of us, and the disconnection it has caused, will be highlighted in terms of our mental health. The importance of human connection has never been more evident, and being able to keep people connected is vital, as our previous guests including Nina Anderson, Truan Resterick, and Sarah Common have shown us. One way we've been able to bring about this vital connection has been with the use of technology and the internet, something we so often take for granted because they're not available to everyone. Andy Young, our guest on this episode, recognises this and has set about realising his vision to help equip disadvantaged homes in the UK with free laptops, desktops and tablets. Andy aims to ensure that no family is digitally excluded and it's our privilege to share his story with you. It's having a library at your fingertips I find the most fascinating thing about all of this. I'm Jake Worley, and this is One of the Eight, bringing you the real-life stories of real-world people, the things they have achieved, and the things that have inspired them. Hi everyone, in today's episode on the One of the Eight podcast, we're joined by somebody on a mission to empower people with the chance to become part of something more than just themselves. Today's guest is using his skills and awareness of the world around him to help those who are digitally excluded become digitally included. It's a fabulous initiative and I can't wait to find out more about the project and the man behind it. So Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So before we get started on your fantastic initiative, can we start by finding out a little bit about yourself? What's your story, Andy? Uh, Well, my story is pretty simple, really. Um, Originally from North Wales, I moved across to Manchester, back in 2000 to ascend university and then back over to Wales and back over to Manchester a few more times. Um, I've always worked in IT. My background is IT. Uh, I did actually train as a games designer, a games developer, uh, but for some weird reason, I never really got into it and moved on to doing, you know, um, programming for businesses, websites, things like that, and uh, technical support. Um yeah, and basically I've just been in that kind of industry up until now, uh, until March last year when I started working on uh, the new projects of uh, trying to put a laptop in every home for free. Um, so my background's IT, uh, and I love trying to help people. That's it in a nutshell. So um, moved around a lot throughout the northwest of the UK, going between, as you've mentioned a little bit there, between Bolton, Wales and Manchester, what what spurred so much moving? Um, the fact that I couldn't wait to leave my parents' house at the age of 16. Not because they were horrible people or anything like that, but I just, you know, I think it happened uh, when I was just turned 16 and uh, I got the question why I came home a bit late. I was home at like 11 o'clock or something. And yeah, that, it only took that one question of where have you been? It's like, okay, I'm leaving. Um, so I decided to do things by myself, <laughs> which, better for worse, is, uh, yeah. I, I, and, you know, you look back and you think you should have taken advantage of staying with your parents because you didn't have to pay for rent and various other things. But, uh, no. Um, also, like just moving around in general. I mean, even when I was younger, we lived, I'm originally from Hertfordshire, um, but 
you know, we moved away from there when I was two years old. Um, but my family's from Scotland and from Holland, so I'm used to going up there three or four times a year and then Holland three or four times a year to see the family over there. So we never really settled in one place. Uh, oh, wow, fantastic. And really. uh, I found myself with a wife and kids. So, so the, um, the love for computers, um, you mentioned to me before we started recording that you've had a love for computers ever since they kind of first came onto the scene. Why? What do you love so much about them? Oh, it's just uh, when they came along, it was such an amazing thing. Uh, I'm back from when we had Amigas, um, things like that. Um, I think my first computer was a CPC 464, which is an Amstrad. And I used to just love playing games on them. Uh, Lemmings, for example, on Amiga, I used to be addicted to that. It wasn't until I was about 13 years old that, um, for some reason, my dad managed to get hold of a new computer. And, uh, I, you know, the moment it brought in, it was just like this beacon of light of something, you know, exciting and new. And, um, right. yeah, I just dived into it. I uh, started uh, changing different parts of it and stuff, seeing how it works. And uh, from 13 till now, I've just enjoyed tinkering with them. Um, I think it's just because I had some problems when I was younger, um, you know, um, as a few traumatic events happened to me. Uh, I found that computers were a good way to hide myself and basically bury myself in that, and that you know that helped me through a lot of things. Uh, sounds a bit cheesy, but it, it works for me having that interest. And I've always just been attracted to them since, since that age. And yeah, it's not something that's gone away. Fortunately, I love the work that I do because I enjoy working with computers or teaching or training other people. It's yeah, yeah, it's it's a nice life. So you've um, clearly you've got a big love for them, and they've they've done a lot for you in terms of your career, and you know a, a lot of I guess emotional and that that kind of support yeah. too. But you've built a career in IT. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about kind of you know you mentioned it to me when I was doing a little bit of research that I think you've had quite a lot of high pressure jobs um, building that career. Can you talk to us a little bit about once you've yeah. built your career in IT, kind of talk about some of the mental health problems that started developing and kind of a little bit about the chain of events that unfolded with your mental health. Yeah. Um, well, basically I started having issues when I worked for a company called, uh, well, I don't say the company name actually, sorry, uh, for a company over in Stockport and how best to explain it. I just moved from Wales, it was back in 2007, so I moved from Wales to my now ex-girlfriend's house in Manchester and managed to get a job quite quickly in Stockport, which was um, team leader, I think, uh, of a group of programmers. And I'd never had that kind of experience before, so it was a learn on the, you know, learn on the job kind of thing. And... After about five or six years, I just started getting carried away with uh, work, becoming, you know, working for work, not working for, you know, to live. It was just working because I loved working. But then it got to a whole new level uh, where I was just there pretty much 12, 13 hours a day, constantly doing stuff. It was so much pressure involved on it, especially in terms of programming to get different applications out and things like that. Uh, It just consumed my life. And... Prior to that, I had some mental health issues, 
such as depression and anxiety, but you know, nothing to the point where anything severe was happening. Um, that all started back in 2011, when my, uh, well, 2010, December 2010, when my daughter was born, uh, Rebecca. And I started getting flashbacks to uh, events that happened when I was younger, which uh, not very happy memories. Um, basically, I was um, taken advantage of by a group of people and uh, without going into the horrible details of it, uh, I was basically sexually abused from 13 through to 16. Um, seeing my daughter being picked up by uh, my ex-girlfriend's dad triggered something inside my head, which uh, is how the PTSD came about. And, oh my God, my life changed from that moment on. I was uh, I had a complete and utter breakdown. Uh, never felt anything like it. Went completely off the rails, tried to get some help from the doctors, and they did point me in the right place, but I just wasn't in the right place to go and get that help. Um, the, the reason why that's such an important thing is because I was so wound up in my work, the worst thing that could ever happen to me would be to lose my job and the stability that gave me because I had quite a lavish lifestyle at the time. And it just, for months and months and months, I just, I have no idea how I survived in in, uh, in that company, uh, in that current state. They did help me in the end, which was good. Um, I went to rehab at the end of 2011 and started my life over from January 1st, 2012. Uh, I stopped all of the, uh, well, I fell into drug taking and various other ways of abusing my body, you know, self-harm and things like that. Uh, I finally stood up. I went out, got help. My now wife, who stood behind me the whole way, just was fantastic and incredible. If it wasn't for her and the family, I wouldn't be here. But um, the direct link between work and mental health problems, is, it just seems to magnify it if you're in a high-intense atmosphere. And it just... It's got its way of taking over. It wasn't until I hit rock bottom that I discovered that money isn't the be-all and end-all of life, and it never should be. It's a necessary evil, and it's something that we need, but you shouldn't, you know, the stuff that I was doing, you know, 12, 14 hours a day working, ignoring my family and things like that, never taking a day off on holiday, and just soul-destroying it. It just stops you, you know, progressing with your life. So if, in a way, I'm thankful for all of the rubbish that happened in those years and the help and support I received from everyone, which was amazing. Um, I'm so glad it happened because otherwise I'd still be in that trap. Uh, it just made, it made me feel, you know, that I can help people. Helping people is a better way of doing things than just trying to earn as much possible money you can off the back of someone else. And uh, it was... It was a real awakening when that happened. Um, so, so clearly there's been um, a, a lot of kind of very difficult, life-threatening and life-changing moments up to this point. Um, but thankfully, you, did, you managed to start seeing a, uh, you know, a, a mental health team who, as you mentioned, have helped you kind of get back towards rebuilding your life along with the support of your wife. Um, and clearly you've not only rebuilt your life for yourself, but also for those around you. And I think it was around this time, you know, when you've started to work towards rebuilding that you, I believe, heard about and eventually met a family who would be a catalyst behind you starting 
my outsourced IT, which is the initiative that you've set up that we're here you know, to, to talk about with you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how it started? Yeah, um, I was at school one day, uh, dropping the kids off, and I think it was it was early days, it was the start of March, and some people were talking about um, having some kind of prepared plan for when the kids eventually, you know, if they were to be taken out of school and having to study from home. And one of the parents started talking about, well, I've not got a device, uh, so I've been using my mobile phone. Uh, with my daughter and she's been doing her lessons on that and that kind of hit me it's like okay that's probably the worst idea ever um and it just something about it just seemed so crazy that in 2020 uh, in the digital age the only access uh, a small i think she was eight years old eight-year-old girl to learn was to learn via her mum's mobile phone, which wasn't particularly, you know, wasn't a fancy Samsung brand new off the top shelf. It was, you know, it was just, how can she possibly sit there for six hours in a day looking at a mobile phone screen and then trying to do homework? And something just clicked in my head with the previous people I've worked with in business and it's like, I'm sure they've got some computers lying around, or a couple of laptops, or, you know, even a tablet or two. So that's when I started getting in touch with a few of my friends and colleagues and peers and managed to get hold of quite a substantial amount of hardware. And then uh, I went via the schools and found out there's more than just this one family basically huddling around the mobile phone. Um, gosh, how many was it? It must have been at least 20 or 30 people in that one school alone who had no access to the internet or anything, any other means of doing computer or IT work at home. Um, the worst one was uh, discovering everyone was relying on libraries to basically go and do some research or do the printing and things. And then, of course, the libraries all closed and there was thousands of people then at that point in Manchester who had uh, signed up, but, you know, expressed an interest in receiving a laptop or some help. But, uh, it, yeah, it's um, it, it was shocking. It was a real eye-opener to see that that was happening. You hear about things like that in third-world countries. with, But you don't... Ex- it's, it's a horrible contrasting example, that. But it, you don't expect to see that in this day and age, that, you know, kids are suffering so badly because they're missing out on so much that a computer brings to their lives and the enrichment and, and their education especially. I mean, you could... You're going to have a generation of kids who don't own a computer at home and they're going to be thrown into an office environment. Right, can you, you know, do this, do that, do this spreadsheet or, you know, do a word, uh, sorry, a presentation or something like that. And they're at a massive disadvantage to anyone else in the, that particular range. It's, yeah, uh, it just started from there, really, and kind of snowballed to the point where I started buying some computers on Facebook and eBay and Spock and Craigslist, not Craigslist, what's the other one called? Can't remember. Um, but anyway, I was just buying them left, right and centre to try and put them into people's houses just to get them to go online and study through the pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, my dad died a couple of years ago. My mum died a year or so before that. And one of the things they left some money behind, I thought, well, you know, it'd be nice to try and do something with it, which is like a legacy for them in a way. So I used that money that I had left from that uh, after moving to Manchester 
and bought as much stuff as I could with it. I think it was only about £5,000, but it was enough to get the ball rolling and to get some marketing on board as well. Um, then, uh, you know, the, the rest is history, really. I got in touch with the council, and the council helped out and gave me some office space over at the Sharp Project, uh, where I'm still at at the moment, and um, that's basically my base of operations there. I have a little team of volunteers coming online very shortly, which would be fantastic. And, um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, what a, a, f- a fabulous story. I mean, I sat here, re- you know, just silent listening to it. It's fantastic. I mean, there's so many parts to it to talk about. I mean, firstly, you know, it, it's amazing how you're you're applying your skills to something so, you know, so philanthropic that you've picked up on straight away from your environment. You know, there's the fact that you, you've, you know, given your parents a legacy in this, which is, a you know, incredibly selfless, given the emotional kind of, you know, what comes with that emotionally. Um, how, how many people and families have you helped so far? Uh, just over 400 families have received a computer, or um, by computer I mean laptop, desktop, or a tablet. Um, one of the biggest things we did was, um, I say we, it's a royal we, um, the project, we decided that people had computers you know, uh, that weren't working anymore. Uh, a lot of people couldn't afford to get them repaired or replaced, and they joined the list in the hopes of getting a laptop for free, which, you know, it's fine, but there's a, you know, a waiting list for it. Uh, so I, d- I thought, well, if there's more people out there with broken machines, I should open up a workshop. So for two days a week, every week since I think it was May, um, people can come down to the Sharp Project with their laptops or computers, and I'll repair it for free on the site, on site for them. Uh, for the more elderly people, um, basically, I would go out and collect the hardware from them, repair it, and then drop it off and show it all working again to get them going. And that was a completely free service which I'm running. But um, that, that that made a big difference with things. Um, yeah, because before it was, um, okay, get a computer, get a laptop, refurbish it, send it back out. And I never met anyone or had any you know much feedback or anything. Uh, but to actually go into people's homes to see the difference that it makes, it's, it's yeah, it makes it worthwhile. It's it's good. It's a good feeling. So you said you've got a line of volunteers that are due to join you shortly. Have you done, you know, have you helped over 400 families single-handedly? Yeah, I've uh, been doing it single-handedly without uh, any help, really. My wife's been a great big support, uh, you know, with encouragement and keeping me going on the bad days. Uh, which I still get from time to time, along with the mental health problems. Um, but yeah, I try. Oh, uh, I tried three or four different places to get hold of volunteers, and it's been a struggle because of lockdown after lockdown. And it's quite a you know enclosed space over in the Sharp Project, so uh, it's only now that I think we're approaching the twelfth of April that things are starting to open up a bit more, so I can bring some more people in to help. But uh, from March till now has been pure chaos with just getting computers collected, refurbished, delivered, then finding out uh, where all the donations are, then going out and picking all them up and then doing all the repair work. It's it's full-time, nine till five, uh, seven days a week job. But you know what? It's uh, worth it. It really is in the end. And wh- where are you getting donations from? From different businesses. Um I'd approach them online and uh, see what they 
ad, basically. It's like uh, the company in Stockport, for example, that I used to work for, uh, they had, I think it was about 15 to 20 laptops, uh, Dell laptops they weren't using anymore because uh, they've upgraded, but they didn't know what to do with the hardware because they didn't just want to throw it away because they lose the data. Uh, so I gave them the option wherein I can take the data from them, uh, basically package it back up and give it back to them in the form of an external hard drive so they kept all their files. And they also had the safety of uh, data protection then because no one else had access to their data apart from them. The hard drives uh, from all donors are destroyed uh, on site or given back to the donors themselves simply to rule out the possibility of anyone intercepting their data. So that's part of one of the big things I do push when we do receive a charitable donation is that we will take the hard drive out and I will give it back to you and it's yours to look after because that way they're in charge of it. That's their data. It's not mine and it doesn't end up in the wrong hands. You know, finding a list of companies online and phoning them up or dropping them an email just to get in touch with them and say, hey, look, you know, you want to have some uh, carbon offset for your company, you know, do something good for the community as well and offer them a package like that, you know, you get your data back and, you know, and you get to help people. Um, that's worked pretty well. Um, there's been a project by the BBC called the Restart Project, I think it's called. And that's basically been encouraging people to send in donations of hardware, uh, which I had a massive response to that. For some reason, they put me as the main contact for the Northwest. So overnight, I had hundreds of hundreds of donations coming in left, right and center. But then the problem then was I had people from Merseyside and, uh, oh God, all the way down to Sheffield and all the other surrounding areas wanting to donate, but they couldn't get the equipment over to me. And it was too far for me to travel, so I then overnight had to arrange for couriers to go and collect them from all over the country. Uh, but I've had a massively successful response from the public with that. Every time I've, I've reached out and asked for you know, any laptops or computers, doesn't matter what the condition, I can do something with it. Uh, it's been great. It's been fantastic. So you touched on it a little bit there a second ago when you mentioned about, you know, some carbon offsetting, apart from, you know, the incredible digital inclusivity that you're providing, I guess there is quite a large environmental impact to this that you're having too. Oh, there is. It's, um, yeah, uh, especially in terms of desktop computers as well. Um, companies just seem to hold on to them just out of fear of data. I'm sure that's the reason. Uh, but, you know, apart from the fact that it's save, you know, doing something green for the planet as well, it's I don't know, hard to hard to answer that one. It's uh, important to keep it green because of the sheer amount of electric waste that the world generates, especially over in places like Pakistan and China, where it's all being ditched. Um, but to give it a second chance at life, at working in a kid's house, it's the best way for it. It's uh, it's very attractive for companies to do that because then they can always say to people, oh, we donate our hardware to uh, you know, X, Y, and Z, and it helps these people here. Uh, every time a donation is taken, I do take their name and address and things and ask them if they want to be mentioned as a beneficiary, uh, which a few people have, which has been nice. Uh, I had one person sponsor a special needs school, and they, I think he gave me two £3,000 to buy in as many laptops as I could. Uh, to basically build this one little special needs school up. 
So we did that, and that was a few months ago. Um, but the wow. offset, it, that's what I mean. It, it's amazing. It, there's quite a few people out there who are willing to do that. And hats off to them for being, you know, so generous and wanting to do, well, wanting to help and do the right thing. It's yeah, it's great. And what have what have the responses been like from people so far who've received all of these laptops and computers that you've given? Uh, I would say very positive um, for the most part. Some say it sounds bad. Uh, I'm not trying to make it. People out to be horrible people, but I do get for every three emails, two are positive, one is negative, usually along the lines of why isn't this laptop brand new? And then I find myself having to, you know, phone them and explain to them, you know, it's uh, it's a project to help people. It's not buying six hundred pound laptops that you can play the latest games on. It's about getting you a device for your children to go on a browser, connect to the internet, and do some work or do some research. Um. So that side of it is a bit, I don't know, I'm, because of mental health problems, I take everything quite personally. Uh, I take those as personal hits whenever I get them, um, which I know I shouldn't. But uh, for the majority, it's been fantastic. They don't, the majority of people don't want to come forward and do feedback simply because I think of the stigma around having to ask for help and having that put into their house for them and things. I think they get a bit embarrassed right. or shy about it. Um, but sometimes you do get some good feedback from them. So, you know, life-changing and things like that, it's it's good to hear. Um, but the businesses, especially with the donations of hardware, that has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't nearly have as many, you know, well over 400 people have benefited from it. Uh, and, yeah, that side of it is a real success. You know, the feedback I get from businesses is great. Um, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, what what are the stories like of the people that you're serving? I mean, you know, who, what parts of the world and life are they coming from that they end up being a beneficiary to yourself? Uh, well, it varies quite massively. Um, trying to think of a good example. Some parts of Manchester are more affluent than others, which is pretty easy to figure out. Uh, for example, Stockport. For some, I don't know why it's Stockport, but the people in Stockport are insanely kind people. Uh, they, yeah, they they basically have donated the most computers from any other borough or area in Greater Manchester, and the main background is, uh, <laughs> um, God, what were they? Anyone over the age of 60, uh, usually women, and, you know, retired, uh, they always have spare laptops and things for some strange reason, and they're, you know, very keen to hand out to help other people. Uh, the main people that I help, I would say, would be middle-aged school mums, basically, or, you know, slightly younger, um, who are struggling. Um, I also help vulnerable adults as well, but no, nowhere near the volume that the families get. Um, the families themselves are I'm just trying to think now uh, best way to describe it they are usually single parents they are usually uh, have more than one kid at home um, they don't usually have internet access even they only have access on their phone um, so I started doing these 4G routers I buy from China uh, top them up with £10 a month for the first couple of months put them into people's houses 
and that would allow them to get on the internet without having to drill holes in walls or put broadband in or get any contracts. Just a pay-as-you-go SIM card running off a 4G Wi-Fi router and they can connect all the anything they want to it. So if they get a computer that connects on or some families actually get two computers if they sign up for it. Uh, so that basically breaks down the wall of having to uh, have credit checks and God knows what else to get broadband installed in your house. Uh, this just bypasses all of that. But um, yeah, the demographic is uh, quite buried. Um, the donors are older, and the people who do need the computers are often younger, and you know, in a struggling situation. Usually, on a, they can be on council estates as well. I've noticed that as well, but. Um, no, I've never had anyone, you know, outwardly reject an offer of help or anything like that. So, so a big part of what you're clearly doing here is empowering people with a way to become digitally included and connected to the wider world. Why do you believe that's so important? Oh God, it's so important because everyone else is having the same opportunity. Oh, sorry, not having the same opportunity, but. Uh, imagine that you have two families one family's got a computer at home where the kid is allowed to do whatever they want on it they can go online they can look up not uh, look at various things for their homework or pictures or you know whatever they need to do and they're using that computer on a daily basis and get earning and gaining skills and things like that whereas you've got the other family where they don't have a computer they don't have a printer they have no internet access they have a mobile phone to share amongst three kids that person is going to be at such a, you know, a disadvantage when they're older, that it's, it's mind blowing. It's, so I mean, if you've never been fr- had a computer in front of you, you know, on a permanent basis to actually do things on, your skills are going to be so far behind. When you come to the workplace, you, it's, it's going to make it awkward and quite difficult for them to get in a job over someone else who's had a computer in their homes, but. It's having a library at your fingertips I find the most fascinating thing about all of this. People who don't have a computer don't readily have access to other knowledge apart from going to the library. Libraries were shut during the whole pandemic and they couldn't get access to anything like computers, printers, scanners, books. So they were kind of just stuck at home working on the worksheets which the teachers have provided them. Whereas the other families have their computers and they can go online, they can buy books on Amazon, they can you know do this, that and the other. It's so important that people are digitally included because it just it gives them such a great start in life. And not even just in the start of life. I mean, you've got people who are trapped at home, who are shielding and things like that, who were then let out and they had to go and do shopping and stuff. But what they didn't know was they could get this the magical tablet device where they can go into Tesco or Asda, do a week's worth of shopping and have it delivered on their house without them having to even step one foot out the door. Um, just having that possibility there for the older generations as well has been a massive thing. Um, think that people think that dish, being digitally excluded happens when you're a young family. It happens to the elderly as well, just as much as it does, um, you know, young single families. It's, yeah, it's uh, it's something that I think needs more recognition and more work on. Um, I think we are getting more help. Uh, the government started to notice that there was a problem because of the pandemic when that started. Um, 
but I don't think anyone truly anticipated the sheer amount of numbers of people who are affected by this, who, who don't have that access on a daily basis. And those people are just sort of being left behind, really. And it's, yeah, like I said, it, it's a massive thing to be part of a connected world. You know, especially if you're a lonely, vulnerable adult at home and you've got no one to talk to, you can at least speak to your family over a tablet or a phone or something like that. Uh, they, they can go online, they can play a game, they can, you know, do what they want really. It gives them a bit more freedom. I, w- I was lucky enough to go to a friend's wedding in India back in January of 2019. And I'd never really been to a country like India before. That you know, it, it, it was a very unique experience versus my, my traveling life prior to that trip. And there was something that really stuck with me when I came back from the trip that literally the night that we arrived back after we got off the plane, got back to the apartment I was living in in London at the time, I opened up my laptop. Um, and it just kind of, something just hit me as I opened up my laptop and I thought I didn't see a single laptop in and amongst all of the people that were living, you know, in, in the areas where they've got not very much at all. And I thought, you know, with this laptop that I have on my knee right now, the possibilities and the opportunities for myself are, you know, you could argue endless. Whereas for a lot of the people that I saw in the areas of India that we went, Without a computer or, or technology, it, it's really painful to think that it, it's hard to see how their life could ever go any differently than how it was when I saw it. And, uh, th- you know, that really stuck with me and really resonated when I heard your story that I think the power of the Internet and a laptop sometimes can be a little bit taken for granted, can't it? Oh, definitely. It's just one of those things that people do take for granted. Because you don't look at it every day and realize, like, oh my god, at my finger fingertips, I can do X, Y, and Z. It's only when that's taken away from you, you're put in a different situation that you look at it and think, ah, right, okay, yeah, I was quite lucky to be able to do that. And how many people can say, Alexa, what's the weather going to be like today? <laughs> uh, and no one, you know, it, it just it's something you do take for granted. So no, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, well, it's been it's been absolutely fascinating to hear the work that you're doing, and I'm blown away by the numbers of people that you're helping and everything that you're managing to achieve by yourself. And I can't wait to follow and hear how it's going to go once the volunteers get involved as well. It's phenomenal. Um, but I, I am aware you have some people to look after yourself in your own house, so I'll give you one last question before I let you go on with your day. Um, at the end of each episode, we like to find out about something or someone that has inspired our guests throughout their lives. So we'd like to know, Andy, who or what has inspired you? Um, the main thing that's inspired me has been the realisation that money isn't everything. Um, I used to live to work and that dictated my life and how I did things. I would only do something, you know, I would do X, Y, and Z if I received X, Y, and Z. I always had to earn something back. And having gone through the whole mental breakdown and all the whole collapse of my world left me in a position of just, yeah, being free of that um, to help other people. And I find that such a massive motivation to look back at my life and see how I was before this. Oh, God. How horrible was I? You know, everything was monetized. 
and that's been a real motivation for me for it. It's okay to earn money, enough to keep everyone happy, that's fine. But to dedicate your life pursuits onto getting money in that, that's terrible. So I, I base my enthusiasm and, um, well, my everything really based on my past and trying to separate myself from that and to better myself. And that's a real motivator for me if I look back at that time and, you know, compared to how I am now. It gets me through some of the darkest moments I've had. I mean, I've given up this business, um, the project, 10 or 12 times. But my wife talked me back every single time. And it's always been brought back to the same thing. It's not about me. It's about someone else and trying to help them. And that makes it, you know, it's really, really gives me some enthusiasm to do it and motivation. Well... I really hope you never stop because, as I think you're aware, what you're doing is incredible and giving so many people opportunities and it's it's its impact is just incredible. So I, I do hope you never stop. And like I said, I can't wait to hear what comes when you get your team of volunteers to help you as well. So thank you so much for sharing this story with us, Andy. Not a problem. There are almost 8 billion people on our planet, and Andy Young is one of the 8. You can discover more about the exceptional work that Andy is doing and how he is connecting people with My Outsourced IT online at oneofthe8.com. Everyone has a story to share. Everyone has something to give. Everyone can inspire. One of the 8 is a movement of real-world people from across the globe, sharing real-life stories, inspiring others, enriching lives, and giving something back. I am. You are. Everyone is. One of the eight. Now streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Join the movement at oneoftheeight.com.